Shalom and marhaba, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. On today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the most pressing and important issue in Israel today, the tragic rise in violent crime and murders in the Arab-Israeli community. Not a day goes by almost without another report of someone shot and killed, tragically. To help us make sense of this senseless violence, we have back with us Mohamed Daraoshe, an expert on Arab-Jewish relations in Israel, the Director of Strategy at the Givat Chaviva Center for a Shared Society, and a former campaign advisor to various Arab political parties. But first, a few thoughts from me. So we're recording this early Tuesday morning, but tomorrow, Wednesday, there will be a key vote in the Knesset to elect the Knesset representatives for the Judicial Appointment Committee, i.e. the committee that elects the judges here in Israel. Basically, after two and a half months of pause, quote unquote, in the judicial overhaul saga since late March, with negotiations ongoing between the coalition and opposition at the president's residence, we've now reached the first major crossroads that may tell us where things are headed. So let's try to make some sense of the current state of play. Number one, context. It's important to note that the committee is made up of nine members, two ministers from the government, including obviously the justice minister, three Supreme Court judges, two lawyers picked by the lawyer's syndicate, and two Knesset members. Historically, there has been one Knesset member from the coalition and one Knesset member from the opposition on the committee. This is what the Knesset will vote on tomorrow in a secret ballot, and this is the source of the intrigue. Number two, the politics of it all. Will the coalition actually allow the opposition member to be chosen for the committee? Netanyahu hasn't publicly decided yet, and Justice Minister Ariv Lavin and other hardliners in the government are threatening to simply choose two of their own coalition members. Opposition leaders like Yaya Lapid and Benny Gantz have said that if this happens tomorrow, then the talks are over i.e. no more negotiations in search of a compromise. We're heading back to the streets. We're heading back to late March. Number three, finally, scenarios. So the first scenario is probably the most likely, right? One coalition MK and one opposition MK are chosen tomorrow. The talks of the president's residence keep going and things still remain, quote unquote, on pause. But there is a second scenario where two coalition MKs are chosen and the talks blow up. And by the way, there may be an interest for the hardliners in the coalition to see this happen and to see the talks collapse, after which some of them have threatened to begin passing the judicial overhaul legislation in the Knesset unilaterally, which would definitely bring us back to late March and the mass protests on the streets. It's hard to believe that Nyao himself wants this to happen but it is, after all, a secret ballot in the Knesset tomorrow. So bottom line, will the opposition and the vast protest movement behind it succeed in maintaining the status quo on the Judicial Appointment Committee? Or will the hardliners in the Netanyahu government strike back, not least against their own prime minister, and follow through on their repeated vows, i.e. that the judicial overhaul will still happen, despite the laws of political and economic gravity, to say nothing of common sense? We'll get an initial answer to all of this in the next few days. Let's get to Mohamed Daraushe. Hi, Mohamed. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. 
Thank you, Neri. I'm glad to be back with you and your listeners. Uh, it's really our pleasure to have you back again, Mohammed. Uh, we had you on, if you remember, last October, right before the election, to discuss Arab-Israeli politics, which was a terrific episode and an important episode. We'll have a bit uh, about Israeli and Arab politics at the end of this episode, but I wanted to focus on the big and tragic news of the past weeks and the past months, which is the surging wave of violent crime and murders in Arab-Israeli society. Uh, the numbers, as you know, Mohammed, are just staggering. Uh, 102 Arab citizens have been murdered just from the start of this year, a 300% increase, triple, from this time last year, uh, which itself was was way too high. To put this all in perspective for our listeners, there were 128 murders in all of 2021, 111 in 2022. We're already at 102 this year, and we're not even halfway through the year. So I want to start with the very basic question, Mohammed, which is why? Why are we seeing such high rates of violent crime and murder in Arab-Israeli communities? What do you think are the main drivers of all this? And Neri, this is not something new. This is a buildup that is reaching a, a point of uh, escalation that we didn't expect it to reach that way. But if you like, if you take uh, the amount of murders in the Arab community until the year 2000, in uh, almost uh, 50 years of the life of the state, there were 50 murders in the uh, Arab community. Since the year 2000, we have 1,650 murders. Uh, so something is happening in the last uh, 20, 23 years. And that's something I think is uh, the state decision to stop engaging into the Arab community and probably to the, allow the Arab community to go backwards in its uh, social fabric. Uh, and at the end of the day, the bottom uh, line, the word is lack of governance. Uh, the state is not governing, and uh, the state chose to be absent. It chose to be absent in uh, policing. There's uh, under-policing. The police is almost not present in Arab towns and villages, especially when you talk about domestic violence, and uh, slowly that uh, that empty space allowed uh, uh, new forces to emerge, and uh, the forces that emerged were the criminal forces that uh, took uh, uh, that space and filled it up uh, with the freedom of movement. Uh, but also the state made, chose to make itself absent in other arenas. Uh, no housing uh, projects in the Arab community. Uh, the Arab community is imploding inwards uh, with the tremendous pressures uh, that are happening. You see also many Arab citizens that try to escape this reality and they move to live in neighboring Jewish towns uh, because uh, of the quality of life that is becoming very, very difficult. Uh, you see many moving. We have almost uh, in the last decade, almost 3,000 Arab businessmen moved to live in Turkey. They simply left the country. Uh, there's all, there are also problems of, of uh, poverty, uh, dysfunctionality of most Arab municipalities because of lack of funding and uh, also detachment from the state. And I would say this followed the 2018 nation state law, which basically said to Arab citizens, the nation state law says Israel is the state of the Jewish people and the state of Israel 
allows itself to discriminate against its Arab citizens. So basically, the state said to Arab citizens, you are second class institutionally, you are second class uh, constitutionally. Do not expect the state to see your interests as part of the national interest. And when this message is out there, then the police translates it as no need to really act in the Arab community, no need to actually uh, fulfill their role as a police. And uh, the, the government agencies stop functioning and they even stop punishing uh, the legal authorities, not just the police, but the other legal authorities, uh, as long as there is no spillover of violence uh, on the Jewish community, they treat uh, uh, the violence as something that can be tolerated. And it starts with violence, but I think that's the least of our problems today. I think our key problem today is uh, organized crime. Uh, organized crime is, is the key problem. Uh, 85% of the murders that uh, you talked about, 85% of them are organized crime. Uh, it's not as a result of uh, violence in the Arab community. I mean, there's still violence. It's higher than the average in the Jewish community. But 85% of the murder cases that you mentioned are uh, organized crime that uh, has... Uh, there are about seven uh, gangs that are operating in the Arab community. And uh, some of them, Neri, are protected by some government agencies because uh, they, they are an extension of, uh, of criminal activity that is part of a Shabak network uh, that gathers data about Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. And uh, they, because they provide that service to the Israeli government, uh, they feel protected and they're treated as protected and the police cannot touch them. Uh, I see. So all of this together created this, uh, you know, what you would call perfect storm for a huge explosion in, in, the, in the amount of, uh, of uh, killings and murders and in the amount of in an atmosphere that is scary. I, I am scared. Uh, you know, my family has lived in the same town for, uh, I'm 27th generation, and in, in about a week, my 29th generation, my granddaughter will be born, and I'm considering... Mabruk. Thank you, but I'm considering leaving, Neri. I'm considering to leave because it's not safe anymore. Really? And I'm saying... Considering leaving, I'm leaving your, leaving your my town family, or... My hometown and after 750 years of family living there because it's not safe anymore. And it's not safe anymore. I'm saying this is something new. This is new. So I wanted to unpack uh, some of the drivers, but... Just in terms of the day-to-day -day that you allude to, for you, your family, your community, uh, and your your brethren, what is it like and what is it, what is it has been in recent months? Are you, Is it a fear on a day-to-day -day level that you don't know where a bullet might come from? Is it uh, people that you know that have been personally affected by the violence and crime and the murders? Well, you know, we're trying to figure out how to live in, you know, through this, so... Uh, from one uh, end, you know, I will not open a business in the Arab community with, under these conditions. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm six years old. I'm beginning to think maybe what I would like to do next is just to open a cafe and, you know, stop my day-to-day -day work and enjoy uh, having, a, a, and just owning a cafe 
I won't do that because the next day they will come, you know, those gangs will come knocking my door and will start extortion. Uh, and uh, this is the case with, you know, I told you the 3,000 business people they from that left to Turkey, they're afraid of extortion. They're afraid of, of running a business. So this is going to of having a business. So many people are, are refusing to even be part of a solution because they're afraid that uh, they are not going to be protected. Uh, there were, uh, you know, people are afraid of collaborating with the police by giving information, for example, sharing your cameras uh, with the police in case something happens. Uh, if there's a crime, you won't share your home cameras that will that might have documented something because the police cannot protect you. Uh, if you share your cameras, then the, you might become subject to uh, attack by those criminals. We have a wedding in our family this week, and uh, for the first time in, in, in our history of generations of having weddings, we're thinking about uh, you know security. We're thinking about how we're going to uh, protect the wedding. How you know you know and 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 some some because, of, some of my cousins because you're are, afraid you're afraid that people will come and uh, rob the wedding or they'll steal cars. I mean, well, or is it just pers- personal yeah. safety? There have been cases of people coming to rob the, you know, the box where you give the wedding gifts, the money mm-hmm. wedding gifts. Uh, we we have cases of, you know, people that might, yes, they might come and rob the cars. Uh, you never know who might be passing with a, with a machine gun that what might go through his head that moment. Uh, simply, there are 400 to 500 uh, uh, weapons in the hands of the two million Arab citizens. Four hundred thousand. Sorry. Right. Yeah. And and you never know. Fifteen year old kid that might have a grudge against uh, one person that sits in the wedding. They might just you know uh, seize the opportunity to come and shoot uh, uh, at the wedding to try to shoot a specific individual individual, and this might explode to something bigger. You know, the, there are a lot of people that are getting killed without have, having anything to do with the, with the situation. A lot of people just passing by. One of my colleagues, her name is Ola Najami. Uh, she was at her parents' home uh, in, in her village, uh, and uh, they decided uh, to stay home, and they asked their, uh, she asked, her son asked her brother, his uncle, to go buy him some uh, baguettes, some bread. And, uh, and the bakery was about 200 yards away. Uh, the next day here uh, that he was in an ambulance in critical condition. That was eight minutes later. He was in critical condition being driven to uh, to the hospital. He got three bullets in his chest uh, because people were trying to get some extortion money from that bakery. And he just happened oh, wow. to be there to buy baguettes. So, I, you know, should I go buy bread? Should I go to that by by milk? It's 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 out there. There, with massive amounts of people of that are involved that are sort of uh, in these gangs. You know, one of the gangs in the Nazareth area, they talk about three hundred members in it, three hundred armed members in the gang. I mean, who can fight them? Can society fight a gang of three hundred people? It's, it, you need the power. So either we start arming ourselves and cr- start creating counter gangs, and that's one option, which will make us also be criminals ourselves, because we will be, you know, if we arm ourselves against the law, 
that's criminal activity, uh, or you surrender, uh, or you just run away. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very severe situation that I've, I've never felt, I've never experienced in my life. So we'll talk about uh, potential or necessary solutions in just a second, but I wanted to go back uh, just to confirm. You said there were 50 murders in the Arab-Israeli community in the 50 years leading up to 2000? Yes. And then a thousand, so just 50, and then a thousand plus in the past, what, 20? 1,650 since the year 2000. Wow. Okay. Uh, so yes, that's uh, quite quite a rise, uh, obviously. And you also said that eighty five percent, by your count, of the uh, the deaths and the murders in the Arab Israeli community uh, that we've seen have been from organized crime. Yes. Right. Uh, but then I suppose the other fifteen percent is what uh, so called uh, honor killings within the family. Is it uh, clan warfare? You know, one clan has a it's it's, a, it's people that, with the other clan. Well, again, that's I don't I think that's a very stereotypical thinking of, of the Israeli media. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, there are seven uh, Arab women that were killed. Uh, uh, you know, I don't I don't I don't call it honor killing. I think I call it right. uh, you know criminals, pure criminal uh, activity. Uh, seven out of seventeen, there were also ten Jewish women that were killed. Uh, right, that's also true. Yeah, but seven out of 102, that's not the massive real problem. That's not really the massive real issue. Uh, some of those women might have been killed also because of criminal activity and not just things associated with what we call or what's called honor uh, killing. Uh, you know, the Arab community has a poverty rate of 47%. Uh, it has a rate of almost 40% of the kids ages 18 to 22 do not work and do not study. What's called needs, not in employment or education teens. They have nothing to do. Uh, right. Jewish kids are in this age, they are in the military. Uh, and Arab kids are just simply floating without any social activities, without municipalities having the money to pay for the electricity of the community center. So what do they do? They keep it shut. They don't have money to pay for a, a guard. Uh, uh, to just come open the community center and lock it at the end of the day. So they keep it locked. Uh, it's, it's those kind of small things that, uh, because of the social economic conditions, that keeps 40% of that age group floating out there without anything to do, which uh, makes them very easy target to be or to be attracted uh, uh, by crime and uh, some of them because they do not work they do not generate income so if someone pays them uh, uh, 500 shekels to go shoot at someone uh, yeah. they might do it because they get at the end of the day 500 shekels uh, so you, in order to solve crime you need to be you need to solve social issues uh, you know it's almost impossible to get a building permit to build a home uh, so what people do is they start building illegally and often building illegally intrudes on your neighbor's space. And mm. you get a lot of problems that, of, of, uh, that are associated with that. You get problems about where do I park my car? Because as I mentioned, lack of, of zoning plans means that people can the people build in, in chaotic way, leaving no space for parking cars, no space for even where you put your garbage bin outside your home. And people yep. start fighting. This is too close to my entrance. This is too f- close to my window. 
And uh, uh, it's simply because of lack of governance. If the state would have authorized proper building permits and zoning plans uh, to allow people that want to build homes to build it in a legal way, that will solve a lot of the friction that, that happens uh, uh, because of those, uh, those matters. But all of this together is responsible for 15%. The, 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 the remaining 85% is organized crime that cannot be fought just by education, that cannot be fought just by government social policies. It has to be fought by force. And the only monopoly over force in Israel is the police. It's the government. You cannot have a force of civilians that can act according the way they want to do it. I mean, uh, it, it, it's a choice that the state has made to, to abandon uh, the place and allow a, a, a crime to, to rise. And as I said, sometimes they're even under the protection of certain uh, security agencies. Yes. Uh, well, we're going to get to the Israeli state uh, again in just a second. Don't worry. Um, but I wanted, I'm curious, I've heard you speak even just a few days ago, I believe you gave an interview. You also mentioned uh, the so-called breakdown of the old traditional social order and norms inside Arab-Israeli society, where in the past, if there was a, say, a dispute uh, or unrest in a certain community, then you had uh, elders and muhtars that you would go to and they would be uh, brought, you know, the issue and they would try to resolve uh, the issue and that everybody would heed their decisions. Is that no longer the case? Is it just uh, a, kind of a, a widespread um, erosion, breakdown of the orders that maybe we saw before 2000? Well, it's no longer the case, mainly because, uh, you know, leadership in the past used to be traditional leadership that it was inherited status. And that came with uh, being part of a certain family with that had the social uh, a social clout, and uh, that was broken after we we went into through that democratic uh, uh, style of uh, electing mayors and uh, the leadership in the community. So, uh, and that is usually temporary leadership. People last for maybe five years as mayors, maybe ten years as mayors. So they rot- rotate, and their uh, their main social status is not permanent and not deterring others. And they, their word is not, maybe is good for uh, municipal matters, but not very good for social matters. Uh, the other thing is that uh, a traditional uh, way of solving problems does not have legal power because uh, people used to uh, abide to it. Now it's not abiding because you have a superpower and that is the state. So, if you don't like what the what the uh, chief of your town, what the Mukhtar said, then you can appeal to the police, you can appeal to the court, and that basically ends the social uh, capacity to to be the uh, the final solution for uh, for a problem. Uh, so people start turning to to or, or they they can either sometimes go before uh, you know. Before the, the local leadership uh, intervenes, try to avoid having a social ruling in the case, uh, they go straight to the, uh, to the court system or to the police. Uh, so the, the, this eroded uh, because of those factors. I mean, I, I, if you ask me, yes, I do want democratic processes, but I think that 
in the process, we demolished uh, the traditional uh, systems in, in a way that uh, left us with very dysfunctional uh, system that cannot solve its own problems. I mean, I'm, I'm personally trying to make an attempt right now to recreate uh, social capacity to solve problems internally by creation of uh, mediation centers in Arab towns and villages. Uh, that that's a long process. I mean, it will take us a few years until we we do that. And it also left you uh, beholden to a uh, absentee state, which is not present, like you said. Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and that's the key issue. Yeah. Is that if you, when you don't feel that there's a top-down policy to try to intervene in those issues, uh, you still feel that there's chaos. And and not only I feel it. I mean, I feel it with pain. But uh, criminals feel it with uh, pleasure because for them it is, uh, you know, open space uh, to do whatever they want to do. Uh, there's no accountability. They can uh, run away. Uh, out of uh, the 102 cases of, of murder since the beginning of the year, only seven cases uh, have been uh, have been brought to uh, to the court. Seven cases. The remaining seven out of 102. Yep. So you get more than 95% chance of getting away with it. Uh, you can be criminal, shoot, kill, you know, get a million shekels from someone, and 95% of the chances, 95%, you're going to get away with it. Those are uh, pretty good odds for a criminal. Um, Absolutely. By the way, it's better than it's yes, it's better than the lottery. Uh, by the way, Mohammed, somebody, uh, an Arab uh, local official, told me uh, I think a year or two ago that this rise that we've seen in the power of uh, Arab organized crime families was due, actually, or partially due, at least, to the success of the Israeli police going after the uh, Jewish Israeli crime families at the start of the two thousands when there was a major uptick in, in that violence uh, that we saw even spill out on the streets with car bombs and uh, murders in the open open day, in the middle of the day. Um, there was a massive crackdown by the authorities and the police. And so a lot of this organized crime activity actually migrated to uh, Arab-Israeli cities and towns and villages because, like you said, there wasn't really an effective uh, Israeli police presence there, that the reach of the Israel police didn't actually extend uh, to those places. Do you think there's some validity to that uh, to that theory? I think that's partially true, Neri. Uh, I think that many of the uh, Jewish uh, criminals that were active in Jewish towns, such as Netanya and other places, uh, chose, you know, when, when it became very difficult for them to operate in Jewish towns, uh, they exported their work to to the Arab uh, towns, but in the process, uh, we you know some some people that were exposed to this as maybe subcontractors in the Arab community, subcontractors to the Jewish criminal gangs, uh, they learned the trick that uh, they don't need to be uh, subcontractors; they can uh, have their own independent business in the process. They learned the tricks, and uh, they are very independent today. Uh, so, yes, there are some uh, uh, national Jewish gangs that uh, their uh, soldiers are Arab criminals. But I think that uh, in the process, we've, uh, we've accumulated too much uh, capacity uh, within the Arab community to have our own independent gangs. Uh, you know, all, that, all what I hear all the time is that they are well coordinated with the criminals in the Jewish community. So 
if you want to talk about coexistence and coordination and cooperation, it exists in the criminal uh, <laughs> world. Yes. Uh, we hear stories of uh, you know if you want if you need a new uh, door for your car, so you know there's a database uh, among the crime community that tells you which uh, street in which Jewish town uh, might have that car from you know the exact make, uh, and you'll get it within 24 hours. Uh, that's how much cooperation it's. It's uh, there's so much database that is shared between the two sides. That seems to be functioning rather well on the within you know the coordination works very well. Yes, unfortunately. And uh, speaking as a journalist here uh, in Israel, the, that story is like the holy grail uh, for journalism stories. That the cooperation, tight cooperation between uh, Israeli Jewish and either Arab Israeli or Palestinian criminal organizations, uh, but obviously a very very difficult story to actually get to and report. Um, also probably very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Mohammed, let's get down to brass tacks in terms of solutions. Uh, what needs to be done to stop uh, this crime and murder wave? Um, obviously, a lot of attention, and I think rightfully so, has been shown on the current government, especially uh, the national police and national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir. Um, I guess let's start with him because we have seen an uptick, like we said, uh, in the six months beginning of this year, which corresponds to the uh, six months of the new Netanyahu government. Um, what in your mind uh, has Ben Gvir done or likely not done that maybe the previous government under Bennett and Lapid uh, were doing? And we did see a slight decrease uh, last year um, in the murder rate in Arab Israeli society. So maybe the Bennett and Lapid government. Uh, was doing something correct and the new Netanyahu government and Ben Gvir kind of just threw it away? What do you think? Well, I mean, clearly the previous government did something good and we saw a reduction in the crime rate in 2022. Uh, They had, first of all, a deputy minister of national security that that was his job, to handle the problem of crime in the Arab community and try to bring bring the numbers down. And he was very successful. And he operated as a, as a sort of a focal point that gathered a lot of attention from the government agencies to try to handle this issue. Uh, the minister, Omer Barlev, was also minded to, uh, positively minded, uh, to try to resolve uh, the problem and try to find solutions. Uh, with the current government, we have a very antagonistic government to the Arab community that many in the government see the Arab citizens as illegitimate citizens, that they don't want them to even be here, that they, if, and if they can encourage Arab citizens to leave, they are happy to do that because they want to do ethnic cleansing. Uh, you're talking about very racist uh, gov- ministers. Uh, among them is the Minister of uh, National Security, uh, the minister who's in charge of the police, uh, who uh, is uh, has been... Uh, has already expressed extreme radical uh, racist views against Arab citizens, and uh, his 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 political thinking is in, in, in is very close to let the Arab society have the worst conditions possible, uh, because one this is not their state, this is the state of the Jewish people, and he's not ashamed of saying that. He says you have he says to Arab citizens you have 22 Arab countries that you can go to. Uh, if you don't like it here, leave. And if you want to encourage that, so you will encourage 
more difficult conditions for Arab citizens to live in. That's the minister. That's his ideology. That's his thinking. And uh, he even went uh, to jail for some criminal activity and uh, in that matter. The minister of finance is of the same make, uh, maybe a bit smarter in, in not expressing it as uh, in a very savage way as the minister of uh, internal security does. Uh, but both of them, and he's the one responsible, he has the one, he has the money, he sits on the money. Uh, he has the resources to solve this problem. Uh, he also has racist views against Arab citizens. You know, we've heard many statements of him that uh, are uh, of tremendous, ugly nature, where he does not see Arab citizens even as human beings. Uh, and so what can you expect from those guys? I don't expect this government to come with solutions. I don't expect Ben Gvir to come with solutions. I think uh, his, his, in his deep beliefs, he's happy to see what's happening. And I think on, on the other, for other ministers, I would think it's you know the, the state of mind of negligence or carelessness about the Arab citizens is there. These are the same ministers that voted for the nation state law. These are the same ministers that voted uh, for the citizenship law. These are the same ministers, the same parties that voted for 28 discriminatory laws against Arab citizens since 2009 till today. This is a government that does not see Arab citizens as equal citizens and as such does not see that it has to invest in their well-being. And uh, when you can make life difficult, I think they, they even enjoy making it. So they're not shedding any tears when they see this level no. of violence in no. Arab I mean, society. In, 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 a normal, in a normal society, you know, when, when you have three times more murder in, in, uh, in the Arab community, if this was a normal state, the minister of police should have been fired uh, immediately. Uh, but it, I think there is enough tolerance for this phenomenon to happen. But also, uh, it's a government that is very dependent on each uh, member of it, that Netanyahu is paralyzed and cannot do much, really. Uh, and I, in addition, I also don't believe his intentions. But even if he has the intentions, he doesn't have the capacity to, to do it. Yeah, I saw there was one data point that I saw that uh, uh, Arab Israelis account for some 20, 21 percent of the population here, uh, but they're account for 76% of all murder victims, which is... Yeah, which means we're almost eight time, uh, four times uh, our size in, uh, in this. Country. Right. And by the way, a decade ago, uh, I believe it was less than 50%. So there has been, like we yeah. said, a, a massive, massive spike. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. With Secretary of State Tony Blinken in Saudi Arabia last week to discuss, among other things, prospects for Israel-Saudi normalization, Israel Policy Forum has released its newest policy report, leveraging the prospect of Israel-Saudi normalization to advance Israeli-Palestinian progress. Co-authored by Israel Policy Forum's Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation Senior Director of Policy Research, Shira Efron, Advisor, Evan Gottesman, and Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplow, this new study follows up the new normal policy report to look at the Israel-Saudi angle specifically. Join us tomorrow, Thursday, June 15th, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time for a timely video briefing featuring the study authors alongside former U.S. Ambassador to Israel Martin S. Indyk. They will discuss the report's analysis, including the political and policy constraints, and specific recommendations for how the United States, 
Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Palestinian Authority should proceed in order to arrive at an agreement that advances regional normalization while also benefiting the Israeli-Palestinian sphere. Register at the link in the show notes. On the issue of Netanyahu, he made a big show over the past week of uh, finally convening uh, a committee that is supposed to tackle this issue. Um, and I think they met yesterday or the day before, and uh, along with uh, Ben Gvir and other you know, senior government officials and uh, police officers and legal officials uh, sitting around the table, there wasn't one uh, Arab not one representative from the Arab sector, uh, so maybe that's uh, also indicative. Um, do you personally just not believe Netanyahu's intentions, even though this is obviously a major issue nationally and uh, is yet another indication of the ineptitude of this new government under his under his rule? Um, do you, are you not holding out hope for for this committee or for this at least prime minister to actually try to do something to stem the tide? No. No, okay. I do not. I do not trust that this government has the the intention. I do not uh, trust that they are going to really come up with something of benefit to the Arab community. I think they will be thinking in terms of what's best for uh, for them politically. Uh, so I, I do believe that uh, politically, for uh, Bengvir uh, and Smotrich. Uh, this situation in the Arab community is good for them. It uh, shows uh, their political base, uh, negligence of the Arab community, and discrimination against Arab citizens is a good message that he can bring to his political base, his racist political base. Uh, and I think Netanyahu is mainly too busy with uh, with his uh, judicial coup that he's trying to do and uh, his minister's uh, minister of justice who's supposed to also be involved in this process his mind is not in the right place and Netanyahu is also busy with uh, escaping uh, 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 you know legal uh, accountability he himself is uh, is part of maybe the criminal system you know he has a three major cases against him of, uh, of doing criminal activity. So I do not expect someone with criminal background to be really that much concerned about law and order yes. in the country. Uh, I think that as long as this government is here, uh, I, I expect that this phenomenon is going to grow. And that's why I understand people uh, that are having second thoughts about uh, trying to escape, you know. Uh, I don't see immediate solution to this problem coming soon. And on this point, Netanyahu, again, made a big show, at least publicly, of saying that he wants the Shin Bet, the vaunted internal security and intelligence agency, to uh, to be more involved or to get more involved uh, on the issue of uh, Arab-Israeli crime, and especially going after the organized crime families. You hear... Some voices, I guess, more local voices in Arab-Israeli society saying, okay, sure, you know, bring in the Shin Bet, uh, do whatever you need to do, uh, while other voices, uh, even people within the Shin Bet or uh, legal officials in Israel say that would be highly, highly problematic for a host of reasons, not least of which uh, the Shin Bet uh, doesn't usually focus on or at all focus on domestic crime, especially domestic crime being committed by 
Israeli citizens. Um, so what do you think about the, this whole issue of bringing the Shin Bet into, uh, into crime fighting? You know, Neri, I, this makes me really laugh when I hear about <laughs> these issues because uh, the Secret Service is already present since 1948 in the Arab community. Uh, they're there. You know, I know they're in my neighborhood. I know they're in my village. I know they're in the Arab community. I know that they listen in to whoever they want, whenever they want. They've been very active since 1948 or even maybe before as, as part of uh, another, under another umbrella. So to call on them now to come into the Arab community, it's basically to expose their presence in the Arab community. They are gathering the information and they know, I'm, I'm telling you already now, they know all the criminals. They know them by name. And if they are missing any name, I'm happy to volunteer and give them the names. Uh, the only thing that is missing is how do you indict these people? And uh, the Shimbet cannot indict people because they don't know how to gather uh, legally uh, information in a legal way that can be presented to court. Uh, they are allowed to bring in people and, and show uh, information without having to expose it or expose where they got that information from. Uh, so with the security-related matters, they can do that. With the civilian uh, uh, crime issues, they can't do that. So bringing them with their capacity to be in the public instead of being uh, secretive uh, is not really what's needed. What's needed is uh, for, for the police to be able to operate uh, more, uh, to share the data that uh, the Shimbet has. I think the only thing that is needed is for the Shimbet to share their data uh, with the police. And it doesn't mean that we need to... Uh, make this uh, a new strategy, a new policy. We don't need the more Shimbet and more money going to the Shimbet uh, to increase uh, their operations in the Arab community. Uh, I do not want to have the, uh, uh, the methods of, of the Shimbet become uh, the new methods. Basically, it's trying to bring back the military administration period, which was imposed on Arab citizens until 1966, in which we were considered, considered military subjects and uh, maybe uh, enemies to be controlled instead of citizens to be receiving services. Uh, and that's what bringing the Shimbet is. So if the police, if the government is uh, real about solving the problems, all what the police needs is to get the data from the, uh, from the Shimbet, to have the Shimbet uh, uh, end their protection uh, to those criminal families, uh, and the link between crime in Israel and data gathering and information gathering in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, to end the connection uh, that uh, sees the criminals as a source of, uh, uh, of information that uh, at, at any expense, right now, the any expense is the expense of the lives of Arab citizens. Uh, and I would, I would add one more thing. I think that the police has enough legal power to do what they need to do. If they need to listen in to and tap on the phones of the major criminals, they can do it. They have the Pegasus uh, uh, system exactly as the, uh, as the Shimbet has it. Why aren't they using it? Because they can tolerate the killing of 102 Arab citizens. If these were 
102 Jewish citizens, the police would know how to do it without the Shabak. Yes. Uh, they know how to handle it. Yeah. They knew how to handle it. You mentioned it earlier. They managed to uproot crime from Jewish towns. They can uproot crime from Arab towns. You, what is missing is the will and not one more tool that might bring Arab citizens back to uh, being treated as enemies through the security agencies of the Shabak. Yes, the question of will uh, and not so much uh, resources, you're saying. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. By the way, Mohammed, on the on the issue of the Shin Bet, which is a fascinating uh, issue, you hear when you speak to Arab Israelis, uh, a lot of times you hear the adamant statement that a lot of this crime uh, and violence in the Arab-Israeli community is perpetrated not by Arab-Israelis per se, but by Palestinians who were brought either from the West Bank or earlier from Gaza uh, and resettled, as it were, in Arab-Israeli towns because they were collaborating uh, with the Shin Bet and the Israeli authorities. And that, uh, you know, the one individual has to bring his family, say, from Janine or Hebron, and they relocate them in, say, Jaffa or Ramle or Nazareth or wherever inside Israel proper. And that these elements and these families, now maybe second, third generations, are the ones actually responsible for, for a bulk of the crime. Do you think there's some validity to that thesis? Because I, I hear it a lot um, when discussing these issues. I think there's a lot of validity for that. I mean, Israel did give a citizenship to 100,000 Palestinian collaborators uh, from the West Bank and Gaza and brought them into Israel. The 100,000. Uh, and uh, with their second or third generation, they're probably much, much more today. Uh, these are people that collaborated with the security agencies of Israel. And because of that, they got uh, access to getting uh, weapons and their, their identities are all often uh, protected. They feel no allegiance uh, and loyalty to the Arab community in Israel. Their allegiance and loyalty is for the Israeli security system. Uh, which in many cases gave them uh, new names and, uh, and as I said, gave them some this sense of protection. Uh, they still have their contact persons within the Shabak. And uh, their sense of being, you know, from one end, their sense of detachment from the Arab community and at the same time sense of being protected by the Shabak uh, gives them that, sen that, that feeling that they can do whatever they want. Uh, they also have easy access to illegal weapons because uh, many of them still have very tight contacts in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, the police and security agencies say that most of the weapons that are in, are, that are in the hands of Arab citizens uh, are weapons that uh, originated from the West Bank and Gaza. The most famous uh, piece of weapon is called Carlo which is manufactured in uh, Palestinian uh, West Bank uh, uh, shops. Uh, and it's used often uh, uh, in, in these uh, low-level crimes. Uh, so, yes, it's, uh, Israel imported 100,000 collaborators that uh, did not uh, manage to uh, integrate them socially or care for them socially. And uh, this population tried to create to itself some kind of a social status and economic status inside Israel. 
And crime is the fastest way. And when you feel protected, uh, then uh, and, and without accountability, and you know that uh, you will be released after a shooting, uh, and if it's only injury without any question, uh, then you do it. And uh, But in addition, I think there's another component. We can see another social component of another social group which are the, what we call internal refugees, uh, which are people that uh, their homes and towns were demolished in 1948 and were forced to move to live in other Arab towns and villages. They came with pretty much nothing, uh, no land, no assets, uh, and they remained on the margins of the Arab community uh, without any absorption policy from the government to help them uh, uh, rebuild themselves. And uh, many of their children are uh, the ones that still live in poverty and without any economic horizons. Uh, very few have done wonders and became doctors and became uh, engineers. But uh, the biggest mass of poverty is within this group uh, that uh, was not attended to socially also by the state agencies. You know, Israel knew how to absorb uh, millions of Jews that came from around the world, but uh, refrained from doing its duty in absorption of the uh, Arab refugees from the demolished towns in 1948. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, and by the way, uh, you know, this is real life for you, Mohammed. Uh, and in my travels and reporting, I've also uh, been in Arab Israeli towns and villages, uh, but I urge everybody listening when they come to visit Israel or if they're already in Israel, just go check out an Arab Israeli village or town and, and see the difference between that town and an, an Israeli Jewish town in terms of just the infrastructure and the provision of services. And, and you know, just to add to this invitation, coordinate with a local host. <laughs> yes, come. yes. Uh, you know, just to make sure that uh, you're not taken to the difficult spots. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to go through the dangers that we go through. Uh, you know, somehow we, you know, we, we might be able here and there to avoid uh, getting trapped into an unfortunate situation. Uh, but uh, so yes, I can point to five percent who are. It may be problematic in the Arab community, but 95% of the Arab community is busy building capacity to succeed and engage positively in, in Israeli society. Uh, almost 24% uh, of the doctors in Israel are Arab citizens. Uh, almost 55% of the pharmacists are Arab citizens. Almost 21% of the university students are Arab citizens. 23% of the engineering students are Arab citizens. So it's not only crime that is growing in the Arab community, but also education and capacity and the medical industry. And, and it's a battle between, within the Arab community between those that want to pull it down and, and keep it as a third world country situation and those that want to move into modernity and be constructive uh, uh, in, in, in the project of uh, a proper engagement in society. And I think that the, there is a clear majority in support of that. Uh, and it's a battle that uh, we have to win. And I think that every student that goes to university is a soldier in this battle. Every woman that goes, goes to work is a soldier in this battle. 
so although I'm, I'm not very hopeful in the long and the short term, I am very hopeful in the long run. Uh, well said, Mohammed. Um, and on that issue, in terms of Arab-Israeli society and, and uh, life here in Israel and its relationship with the Israeli state, do you think this crime wave uh, increases or decreases the motivation and the urge of Arab citizens for further integration and political activism uh, on the national stage, like we've seen now grow uh, in recent years? Or do you think it acts as a, as a drag uh, that fuels alienation from the state, uh, like we kind of saw in last November's election with a low turnout? Um, basically the notion that, well, you know, nothing changes and things are only getting worse. Uh, and by the way, our own politicians are just giving speeches in the Knesset. So why should we get more involved in this thing called the state of Israel? What do you think? Well, and I'm, I'm going to give you a contradicting answer. Uh, from one end, we see people saying, blaming the state and say, if this is Israel and if this is its democracy and this is the result of it, we don't want to engage. And you see people pulling out. They say we are neglected and it's intentional negligence and uh, it's not fair game and our engagement has not been effective. Uh, so you get a lot of that. Uh, from the other end, just a recent poll we conducted at Givat Khabiva showed that 79% of Arab citizens want Arab political parties to be part of future government. Mm -hmm. They want to be in a coalition. So, okay, if you want to be in the coalition, go vote first. Yes. You know, <laughs> so they're saying, we don't want to vote, we don't want to engage, but we want our political parties to go vote. So it's a chicken and egg situation. Uh, maybe they're waiting for the Arab political leadership to make the move, and they're not seeing the Arab leadership to make the move. So they're showing, indicating the direction for the Arab political leadership. It is engagement in, in the executive level and not just in the legislative level. Uh, go become part of government. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I think it's a message to the Jewish system, the Jewish uh, governmental system or political system that says Arab citizens do not just want to be part of this uh, decorative democracy where we can preserve, send representatives to express their anger and frustration. We want representatives to be in executive positions that can affect our life in a normal, in, 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 in a real way, in a serious way, and not just a place to air out our perspectives and, and anger. And I think there is that mood uh, is going to challenge the uh, Arab political scene in the next uh, few years. Uh, currently, we, we see the frustration probably taking more dominant place uh, with the reduced turn, turnover, uh, turnout rate reduced turnout rate to national elections, but clear messages of wanting to be in future coalition. And those that ask, did Mansour Abbas joining the previous coalition, did the experiment work? I think that's the answer. Before the 2021 elections, the support for within the Arab community for joining the coalition was 57%. Today, it's 79%. In the Jewish community, in 21, uh, the, in the Jewish community, it was 35% support. Uh, today, it's 47% support in the Jewish community for having our political parties in the coalition, 
with 46% against it. For the first time, you have a Jewish majority also supporting having Arab political parties in the future coalitions. So that's, uh, I would say, positive news. And a good transition, uh, just the last segment before we let you go, Mohammed, about uh, Arab-Israeli uh, national politics. So so basically what you just said, Mansour Abbas and his Islamist Ram party, which uh, famously joined the Bennett-Lapid coalition, uh, what, two years ago exactly today, uh, first time ever an Arab-Israeli party joined uh, a ruling coalition. You're saying Mansour Abbas and Ram are actually on, on solid footing in terms of the sentiment of the Arab-Israeli public. And their direction. That's what it feels. That's what it feels. I think that uh, politically speaking, they are in the in the in, in very associated and very connected to re- the real pulse, the political pulse in the Arab community. Their problem, they're not very much connected with the social pulse. Uh, you know, they come with a religious, very religious uh, uh, kind of approach. Uh, they see themselves as a religious uh, party uh, and the majority of Arab citizens do not see themselves as religious. They see themselves as more modern liberal in their lifestyle. And that's why I think that uh, for Mansour Abbas, the message is he needs to uh, update his agenda by maybe widening his agenda to more uh, liberal approach. I think that can be done by him integrating a more liberal figures and faces and not just Islamist uh, representatives. In the previous elections, he had uh, uh, Mazen Ghanaim, the mayor of uh, uh, of Sakhnin, uh, to try to balance his, uh, his image by having people who are non-religious people on his uh, list. In the last elections, he did not have this. Uh, and if he continues this way, I think he is carrying his own glass ceiling uh, and he's making his own limits because he cannot bring in more Arab voters that are uh, liberal uh, if he maintains a a very religious social agenda which uh, calls on women to cover their head, calls on separation in uh, the educational system between boys and girls. I wouldn't vote for such a social agenda. So his political agenda of integration in Israeli political uh, scene uh, for that, I think he deserves all of my support. But I'm afraid of his social agenda when it comes of how he wants to manage the dress code of my wife and daughters. Right, right, right. Um, and then finally, Mohammed, the other uh, Arab parties, uh, Hadash Tal, which is a merger of the communist and the, I guess, the more moderate Palestinian nationalist parties. And then on the far, uh, I don't know whether it's the far right or the far left, the Balad party, which is the more kind of uh, radical Arab nationalist party. Uh, what do you think the future holds for them? Uh, obviously, Ayman Ode, the head of uh, the communist Hadash party, announced his uh, retirement from politics uh, in the coming months. Well, I think for Hadash and Tal, they are in real trouble. Uh, they are in a very a problematic place. They do not have Jewish partners. And I think uh, as such, they cannot tap into a meaning Jewish partners in a future coalition. Uh, They have a very tense relationship with uh, Yesh Atid and they have a very tense relationship with the Machanea Mamlachti. Continue to blame them for uh, lots of uh, policies. And, uh, And, you know, to the ears of Arab citizens, basically it says, 
you are not going to be in any future coalition. So to, for 79% of the population, they become irrelevant. Uh, and they continue with this messaging. And I heard Ayman Odi speaking in, in our conference at Givat Habiba uh, two weeks ago, reinstating the same words of blaming mostly and throwing the blame mostly on the leadership of the center parties and not necessarily on the right-wing parties. Uh, so if you can't really create coalition with Jewish colleagues in the Knesset, how can you become part of the decision-making? How can you become part of a future coalition? So I think they are in real problem. One leadership problem, Ayman Odeh, his, his departure, because he knows that he is not electable anymore within Khadash. Uh, many blame him for the collapse of the joint list and uh, the failure of the joint list, an experiment that he led and the experiment failed. Uh, so and, and I think he's trying to avoid uh, being challenged on, on this issue, and that's why he's basically uh, giving up and escaping uh, Being, remaining in Khadash. Uh, with Tal, there is another leadership problem. Ahmad Tibi has been there for so long that people are so exhausted uh, asking him to create space uh, for a new leadership in his party. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, people are saying this is not a taboo, this is not uh, only for you, allow new faces, new generation to come. And he's not doing that. Uh, for Balad, uh, They benefited last year from the anger at the collapse of the joint list. So they got much more than what they're worth in, uh, in real life. Uh, they got almost uh, three plus seats, uh, which translated to zero because they didn't pass to zero, the yes. threshold. Uh, they didn't uh, get to the threshold. Uh, And they seem very happy about yeah, that as well. They seem very happy about it, but I, I, I do not think they can... Uh, pass uh, uh, the threshold in uh, if they are alone in the future in the future elections they don't have that capacity uh, they benefited as I said mostly from anger and I don't think anger is going to be present as a tool for them in the next campaign okay um, thank you so much for that summary Mohammed and thank you uh, really for the past hour uh, breaking down um, well a very sad and tragic uh, last few months in the Arab Israeli community and society, but I think it's really important uh, to talk about it, address it, and hopefully to uh, to stop it, um, hopefully soon. So thank you again, Mohammed. Thank you, and uh, let's hope we will manage to overcome this. Inshallah. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks again to Mohammed Darausha for his generous time and insights, as always. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe. Please leave a rating and comment. That always helps. And as always, thank you for listening.